welcome to Flourishing Education, the podcast that provides you with conversations with experts and like-minded people who would like to see education turn into a flourishing environment for the well-being of all. So, are you ready? Let's start. Hope you enjoy this session. Hello and welcome to another Powerful Imperfectly Perfect conversation. Today I'm talking to Mike Mike McCarthy. So Mike is a former journalist and reporter for the BBC and Sky News. He's a media trainer, but most importantly, he's now a campaigner for mental uh, for a better mental health, and he spends a lot of time campaigning um, for, for this for the better mental health. A very warm welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thank you. Thank you. So, Mike, um, shall we start with, um, so you're a former journalist, but now you are campaigning for better mental health. Do you want to explain to us, uh, to me, to the, to the listeners a little bit, um, you know, your story around, around this? Yeah, uh, what happened was that on the 21st of February this year, uh, we lost our son, uh, our beautiful son, Ross, to suicide, he was just 31 and had struggled with severe depression uh, for more than 10 years. Um, and even though we knew that Ross suffered from depression, um, we really were shocked to the core by what had happened. <clears throat> and it led me to try to educate myself about mental health uh, in this country and um, what was going right, what was going wrong. Ross um, wrote a, a long farewell letter um, and one of the things that he said uh, in it to his, his family was, please fight for mental health. The support is just not there. That's how he felt. Um, and we know a lot of it, sadly, with hindsight, uh, that he did... Um, fight a very sort of lonely battle and uh, it was a very long and dark struggle and I think in the end although we'll never know for sure he decided that he would never find salvation. So um, my research, my self-education if you like has, has uh, directed me uh, towards uh, campaigning and speaking to other bereaved mums, dads, brothers, sisters, etc. Speaking to charities, to psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, etc. Um, to see how best I can help drive forward uh, the improvements that, that Ross asked for. Mm. So, so first of all, as I said offline, I'm really sorry for your loss. Um, I really believe, you know, I'm a mum myself, I just can't imagine what you must have gone through. Um, and I really believe that, you know, like I said previously, nobody should have to go through this. You know, the, I really don't think that, you know, in the society we now live in, anybody should, should fail, you know, such a sort of, like you said, dark find themselves in such a dark situation that the only 
exit is to take one's life. Um, so, you know, really my heart goes out to you. Um, and I, I just, I also want to say, I love how you are using that um, experience of what happened to Ross to actually make a difference. Because to me, you know, I've spoken to other parents whose children have died, you know, in different circumstances. So for example, under the use of drugs or things like that. And what I love about what you're doing is that it, in effect, Ross is, is still here through you and through that campaign. Um, and, and to me, that feels really powerful. Is that what how you you feel that as well? Very much, yeah. Um, I think you know all of those people who have left us in the same way that Ross did, and there are far, far too many. Uh, the statistics, um, you know, some years they're up, some years they're down, but basically they aren't really changing very much over time. And uh, I just want to be a voice for those who uh, are no longer here to use their own. And I think we can all be a voice for the people uh, who have left us uh, through suicide because, you know, I'm just one grieving dad. We're just one grieving family. Uh, but there are thousands upon thousands like us every year around the world, 800,000 people take their lives uh, through suicide. It's a pandemic that we never get to hear about. And maybe we can sort of talk about why we don't get to hear about it. But uh, yeah, in answer to your question, um, I feel Ross is with me and the fact that he he made that request in his letter um, means that he's sort of uh, on this campaign with me. I don't know whether that will make sense to people who haven't been in this situation, but uh, we we do feel that he's around. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and, you know, that campaign, so you said that campaign for better uh, mental health. I, I wrote, and I'm in the process of writing the second edition of my first book called The Flourishing Student. Um, and, and really what I say in that book is when I came back to higher education in 2014 after um, you know, almost 10 years away from, from education, you know, I was running my own business to say that I was horrified is an understatement. And what I was seeing in our young people, I think it's still true in, in 2021, uh, although I'm currently on a career break, is that you know, our, the subjective well-being of our young people is clearly not what it was 10 years prior. Um, and, and also, obviously, I, I'm now Franco-British, but, you know, I, I was born in France, uh, you know, raised in France using French as my, as my mother tongue. And, you know, it, what really was strike, striking for me in the English language that I don't think we have in, in the French language as such is the use of mental health. So as a linguist, um, I love words. And I think I think we should, you know, I've had to learn English the hard way. I often say that. So I, I'm a little bit of a snob with language because it, yeah, I've had to learn it the hard way. Um, but to me, what's interesting is the Eng in the English language, we use the word mental health, but in fact, we mean mental ill health. And 
whereas in French, you know, mental health is something that we have. It's like physical health. So you can actually look after uh, your mental health. Um, and you know, one of the new thing that I've written in the second edition of my book is that actually um, also I think that um, the approach in, in the UK and maybe it's true also in, in, in France is that we tend to take a, a pathogenic approach to mental health. So looking at the illnesses and trying to find a cause or a solution. And obviously rightly so when you've got somebody who's you know, suffering from depression, we need to find um, help to support those people. Okay. But to me, there's, there's a big gap, and the big gap is the, what Corey Keyes calls salutogenic. So the how do we look after our well-being? We all have well-being, it's a continuum. And how do we make sure that we don't lose that well-being? Um, because actually that is more likely to tip us into uh, what I call languishing, you know, or survival, and then, and then into mental ill health. So... How does that resonate with your your own research and the work that you've you've been doing? Yeah, a few points there, and um, I, I think first of all, I think you're absolutely right. Um, uh, you know, someone once said we've got to stop fishing bodies out of the river and look further upstream to find out why they're jumping into the river in the first place, and and that makes to me absolute sense. It's too late once they're gone. And we've got to look at why all of these people are taking the route that they do. Suicide is the main killer of young men uh, in the UK under 45. Not drugs, not road accidents, not COVID. It's suicide. And yet we don't talk about it. We um, the, There's a massive stigma around it. Where is the public debate around it? Where's the political discourse uh, uh, around suicide? So I think that, you know, that, that's one thing. One of the things that um, I've done um, after, uh, since Ross died, is to set up, uh, it's called Talk Club. Uh, and it's, you know, as the name suggests, it's a, a group. It's for men, because I think we do have a particular problem with with men, certainly in this country uh, and how they relate to mental well-being. But Talk Club is for men who want to express their emotion in a safe, non-judgmental environment. Um, and they are positively encouraged to think about mental health as opposed to mental illness. So they may come in to the meeting, um, you know, feeling very down. And uh, the first thing we do is take a score out of 10 because we're very good at saying, how are you? And just giving the pat answer, yeah, I'm fine. And then off we go to, to something, something else. Um, and we feel so much and say so little, certainly uh, as men. So when the men come into it's a weekly meeting that I do in my home city here in Yorkshire it's a weekly meeting uh, men are invited to uh, come along we take a score out of 10 how are you out of 10 and why and the whole purpose of the two-hour meet weekly meetings are to try to look to the future and how we can improve on that score um, some people come and, and register a three or a four or even lower. Some people come and register eight, nine or even ten when they come, uh, come through the door. Uh, but the focus is very much on mental health. And I think this is where we have to go further back down the river to find out 
why people are jumping in. We need to look after their health um, before they become like my son became after 10 years of, of struggling, um, you know, because it's too late, he's gone and we're not going to bring him back. Mm. So I assume you know Ben Akers? I do. Yeah, okay. Um, so Ben Ben is in Bristol and I'm just outside Bristol. So we, we, we know each other and we meet, you know, from time to time. And I recently met up with him um, and we mentioned the word mental toughness as opposed to, uh, or fitness, not toughness, mental fitness as opposed to um, mental health. What's, what's your view on the use of mental fitness, like physical fitness, for example, when we talk about mental health as a way to remove the stigma uh, around things? Do you, th would I, I that work for you? I think it's a great phrase. I'm a journalist and like you, you know, I love language. Um, and I think, you know, incidentally, Ben Akers uh, was my inspiration for, for starting uh, this branch of Talk Club. Bennett, as you know, the founder of, of Talk Club. Uh, and yeah, the Talk Club describes um, the, the sessions that we hold as uh, a gym for the mind. And again, I think that's just a really good phrase because, you know, how much of our time do we spend on running, going to the gym, you know, watching what we eat, dieting, whatever. How many programs are there on television and radio about, you know, looking after your physical well-being, your physical fitness? Where's the equivalent for, for mental fitness? Where is it? I think people, uh, certainly the younger generations, um, are beginning to take this on, on board. I really do think that we've got a long way to go. Um, uh, for example, even in the that, you know, going back to the point about language, the basic language that we use around mental health, um, you know, we still refer to people committing suicide. And, you know, many people I'm sure will know that the, that word commit comes from a time in the UK when suicide was regarded as being illegal. Now that illegal status was lifted in 1961, that's 60 years ago. And here we are still, using that phrase commit suicide now i'm not a language fascist by any stretch of the imagination uh, and it's really to be to be honest only since we lost ross that i appreciate how important language is around suicide and how hurtful and inaccurate it is to say commit suicide because um one thing ross never did was to commit a crime he didn't commit a crime and um you know, I'm, I'm quite keen that we sort of uh, ditch that phrase once and for all. And certainly in the mainstream media uh, in this country, broadcast media uh, primarily, um, that you shouldn't hear that phrase or read that phrase on broadcast media because, you know, the likes of the BBC, ITV, Sky News, they're all very aware uh, of what the guidance is from uh, Samaritans on, on using that word. But then we come on to other phrases around the sort of idea of masculinity in the 21st century, um, you know, uh, phrases such as man up. Um, what does that mean? It means shut up, basically. Take it on the chin, don't complain, don't share, suppress it. Um, and there are lots of other sort of uh, examples that I could use about sort of 
language. And, and uh, yeah, I think we've really got to examine masculinity in the 21st century and, and, and um, how we feel about vulnerability as, as, as men. Um, and we have to, you know, we have to have a, a discussion about this and it's only really just started. Mm. Yeah, and the, and the thing is, is, it's about mental models, right? So to, to me, it just feels like we, we, we look at the surface as what we see um, and we don't dig deep enough in the conversations we have around mental health. So that's another thing I'm, I'm saying in that second edition is that I think to me, you know, you were talking about um, that word commit suicide. So, you know, we should be saying take, you, you, he's chosen to take his own life. Um, or died by suicide. Yeah, or died by suicide. But it, that to me is, is also not looking at what the reasons it happened so our as i said previously in our in the society we now live in surely how do we get to a stage where someone only feels that the only option is this i can't quite fathom how we would think that's okay that first of all you know that that i just don't understand but also uh, you know it's those paradigms so you were talking about masculinity um you know, I, I have a husband and, and two boys, one 14 and the other one 11 and a half. Um, and, and I think that notion of masculinity or being a, a boy or manning up, um, again, I don't think we question it enough, uh, you know, as parents, as, as teachers, educators, um, in the sense of, you know, I, I often, you know, I, I've, I've sort of picked on my husband a couple of times and just said, please, like don't say these things and I think it's because it's societal is how you we we grew up you know but this notion of manning up and you know uh, oh don't cry like a girl so I heard my my youngest with his friends um, and two of his friends were saying oh you're such a girl because you're always upset mm -hmm. um, and I actually came in and I said to them I don't think that's okay um, and there's that notion of being a bystander, right? As a parent, where do we stand? Or as teachers, where do we stand? Um, and how do we talk about our masculinity uh, in a world where actually before the roles were so defined, you knew what a man was, was a woman was. And now, you know, a lot of young people, teenagers don't even know whether, you know, who they are, what they stand for. Um, so, so what, What's your take? Um, you know, I think we should be allowed to celebrate masculinity. Um, and I think there is fear almost about celebrating masculinity because uh, some men, I think, believe that to, to do that would be to pass comment on feminism. Um, and it's not that at all. You know, of course, it, it goes without saying that any death by suicide, whether it's male, female, whatever, is equally tragic. Um, and there is a you know, particular problem with, with uh, younger women now uh, taking their own lives. The figures uh, are increasing, increasing there. Uh, and again, we've, we've got to look at that. But I think men should be allowed to celebrate masculinity. Um, I think that they should be encouraged uh, to um, understand, not to say, but to understand that vulnerability is not 
weakness. And we need to open up a discussion. I mean, for example, in this country, we have Woman's Hour uh, on the radio. And, a, you know, a, a very good programme it is, and I sort of listen to it um, quite a bit. Uh, but why is the No Man's Hour? You know, where, where is the man's hour? And, 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 and what does that say about the way our society is at the moment, you know, uh, and I'm sort of talking to other people about this and I'm, I'm really interested to hear other people's views. Um, as I said, I've spent a lot of time speaking to um, different people in different walks of life to try and find out more about, you know, how somebody does end up uh, in a situation uh, like Ross when they feel that, um, you know, I think it's like standing in a dark room and seeing five different doors and trying all of them, but there's only one open, you know, there's only one open, all the other doors have been closed. I think there are questions around spending uh, in this country on, on mental health. Um, I think we should have parity with spending on physical health. Um, Ross, I believe, had what I call cancer of the mind. It was terminal. Okay, the medical profession didn't know it was terminal, but he had tried to take his life before. Uh, he had struggled for 10 years with depression. Uh, he had taken a range of um, medicines, and I, I may not be pronouncing all of these correctly, but I'll read them out um, uh, in, in the sequence that he was prescribed. Propranol, sertraline, fluoxetine, mirtazapine, duoloxetine and propranol together, venlafaxine. And, you know, um, the, the message that I've read from my understanding of Ross and, and many other people who found themselves in situations like that is that we do rely far too heavily on, on chemicals uh, to try and fix the problem. Um, it's it's ironic, I think, that at Ross's post-mortem, there were five people present, um, medical technicians, you know, at the moment of his death and when he was sort of crying out for help, there was nobody. Uh, Ross had to find and pay for his own counsellor. Uh, he asked for therapy uh, and therapy, uh, the, the NHS agreed that therapy was the right route for him and they told him come back in six months you're on a waiting list and Ross died while he was on that waiting list and I've spoken to um, so many families who have the same story that their um, loved ones have died while they've been put on a, a, an NHS waiting list so it's um, you know there's a, a real societal um, problem going on here and I think it's one that you know you may not have had any direct connection with with suicide in your family you may or may not uh, but there are far too many good people Ross was a good dedicated family man um, he had a fiance they were due to get married and couldn't because of Covid he had a three-year-old boy who he adored uh, he was very reluctant to time take time off work maybe that was part of the problem but he had a fantastic work ethic he loved his family and we loved him um and um he's just one person ross is just one person he's everything to us but he's just one person you know i know that there, there are so many you know thousands of people in a similar situation who who you know, if they were here now, would be saying the same thing 
about their sons and daughters. And that's a loss, not just to us as a family, you know, we'll be broken forever by that, but it's a loss to society uh, as a whole. And, I, I, you know, um, I just plead with people really just to spare a thought uh, for, for what's going on um, at the moment. And maybe, you know, sometimes to have a think about what we can do together to, to, to change it. Yeah, and you know, Mike, what do you think we can do together to change things? Um, oh, you know, th th there is so, so much. I think, you know, at the core of it lies um, a, a, an understanding of, of, of how people are when they're severely depressed. I think even the medical profession, Ross, for example, when he was working away from home and couldn't get to um, uh, an appointment with his GP, was sort of discharged and then sort of almost um, penalised for, for that. Uh, and he wasn't perfect, you know, uh, I'm not saying that for, for one minute, who is? Uh, but if you're severely depressed, and, and people who have been will, will know this already, it can drain uh, all of your energy. So just to find the strength and the wherewithal to decide, A, that you want to go to a GP, B, to pick up the phone to make an appointment to that GP, C, to get to see that GP. And let's not forget that throughout COVID, um, many people haven't been able to see a GP face to face. That's a, a, another story that, uh, you know, perhaps needs to be addressed. Um, so I think we've we've got to understand that, you know, the medical profession surely more than anybody else. And there are, you know, don't get me wrong, there are there are so many good people working in the field of mental health who work long hours, dedicated professionals who get little reward uh, for it. But and I don't think it's necessarily a problem about individuals. I think it's a problem about the coldness of the system. I think the system needs root and branch um review and change uh, because i think the system at the moment is, is is cold there are so many other things that i could sort of go on and on about about what you know what i'd, I'd like to change as i say you know just basic things like the language just uh men's appreciation of of, of their place in the world in the 21st century you know uh post uh, post-industrial sort of um, situation that, that many men find themselves in, you know, the lack of um, certainties around who they are and, you know, how they should be and how they should behave and, and all the rest of it. Uh, I could go on, but, you know, I'd be here for a very long time. Sorry. Yeah. And, and maybe one of the things that I, I've been thinking about or sort of arguing for is a more systemic approach to to well-being and mental health so um starting with as as a mother i really particularly with boys and teenage boys i think there's a tendency to to equate and i'll show my age here our teenage boys to kevin the teenager you know kevin and perry so um that's something that as a stereotype i'm challenging with both the, my boys in the sense that i don't want to just assume that they're gonna grunt and that you know and i think this is where there's a big difference between 
girls and boys in teenage years is that as a society we assume that teenage boys will just grunt and not talk to us and be grumpy and I don't think that's encouraging what you're you're, you're encouraging in talk club so uh, often I really encourage it, it, my boys to just talk to me and not just go mm, yeah no um okay sometimes it requires in the teenage years to be to be ready when you you know they are as opposed to when you want them to be um so that's one of them but you know you were also talking about that image of going upstream and to me who's been in education you know a product of education in the system trying to change it from within I do think that our current education system is not fostering well and flourishing students. So I think the system with its demand, you know, the, the, the high stakes of exams, all of those things is clearly generating you know, chronic stress. And we know that chronic stress triggers our sympathetic nervous system, you know, fight, flight, all of those things. So that, you know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, how do we get the, the our society and our government to to move away from the one size fits all? You know, you take a pill, you'll be sorted, which clearly didn't work for Ross and actually doesn't work for a lot of people. And looking at the individual, you know, person and their situation and their circumstances, because. You know, obviously, you said Ross paid for his own counsellor, but I know some people who have no money to pay for a, for a counsellor, um, which then makes it even more you know, difficult. Um, so, I mean, I've, I've said a lot here, but I just wonder what your, your views are on this, on that sort of systemic, more societal, big, big shift. I am absolutely with you on that. There's so much noise, you know, there are a lot of people like me, you know, trying to get the message across as, as individuals. There are a lot of charities out there doing uh, fabulous work. Um, but I really have got the impression that it's very fragmented. The voice of people like us is, is fragmented. And I think we have to find some way to come together to speak uh, as one voice um you know i often I often say very rudely that you know you, you don't talk to politicians you, you scream at them and apologies to uh, all politicians who might be uh, listening to this but i think we've got to speak with one voice um i'm next week due to um meet the suicide prevention minister and um you know i'm grateful for the opportunity uh, but I don't, I only want to speak about Ross as, as an example of, of, you know, all the other thousands uh, like him. Um, and I, 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 this is why I say I think there should be a root and branch review, um, trying to understand the various reports, the various inquiries, the various committees the various associations and different bodies that you know have a role to play in suicide all of them you know very important roles i'm sure uh, but it's so so complex and i think we've got to um you know maybe kind of start again in, in some ways easy for me to say uh, i know 
Um, so I think there has got to be a big, big debate about it. Um, and sadly, you know, with the stigma, uh, how it exists, we, we're finding that very difficult. Yeah, you know, um, well, I don't, I don't know if I can remember the last time that I heard a debate in Parliament about suicide, for example. I've seen one or two documentaries about it and one or two news reports about it. Uh, so as far as the media concern uh, is concerned, which is my area, um, you know, why aren't we recognising the fact that it's the biggest killer of young men under 45 in this country? If that was anything else, you know, we, we sure as hell know about it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm coming to the conclusion, I think, you know, in the past eight months um, that something radical has got to happen. Uh, you know, it's not got to be tweaks here and tweaks there. The government, for example, has a, had a, a plan of reducing uh, suicide by 10%. Why? I mean, we haven't. I don't think we've reached anything like that, incidentally. Um, you know, the, the, the plan clearly hasn't worked. But why isn't it zero suicide? You know, we've got to be more ambitious about this. Um, it, it's too big an issue to, you know, to tinker at the edges with, basically. Mm. And what you were describing, this of all the, the, the different committees and the things we have, it's a little bit like with the NHS, right? And, and all in schools where you've got high accountability. Is the problem is whilst you're having high accountabilities and all these these things, then you're not spending money on the most important things, which are uh, the you know, what I was saying, the preventative. So that, to me, there's a real feeling that in everything we do, we we're very reactive. And obviously, yes, we need reactive uh, units for people who are at that point where, you know, it's a question of, you know, they may take that, you know, it's over, it might lead to death by suicide. So we need to prevent that. But actually, you know, be reactive. But what about the preventative measures? Um, and, and again, you know, I don't know what your, your take is on that. But to me, I just feel that, um, so, you know, in my work, I look at more well-being, so flourishing, what makes us flourish, what makes us languish or, you know, survive. So I'm not a mental health expert or mental ill health expert. That's not what I do. But I, I think what we forget is the proportion in the middle. So we don't we don't talk or educate or discuss with with a lot of the population that is neither languishing nor flourishing that is in the middle and actually that critical mass. Um, if you do preventative and talk about what well-being is and how we can look after it and how we build our toolbox of strategies to co cope with the challenges that life will not not if it's when uh, will bring to us then what you may do is prevent that slipping into the, the languishing and survival and then into mental ill health. But I'm not seeing any of that. So, hmm. I mean, I don't know. I, do, would you agree with that, with this sort of approach of more preventative? Yeah, and I think one of the uh, key routes uh, to, to go down uh, towards that, that goal is the education system. Um, I think we are starting to get better and I think schools are beginning and universities are maybe 
beginning to understand the importance of uh, mental well-being and mental health because you know without mental uh, well-being you can't really have physical well-being um, so education going into schools um, I think there's been this sort of feeling that by talking about suicide we might encourage people to to take their own lives that that has now been quite firmly um, disproved that that is not the case um, and I think you know th there have to be sort of careful conversations about how we do this but I think it's something that we should um, talk about maybe not suicide specifically uh, but we should certainly be talking about mental well-being with the, with the youngest of, of children going right through the education system um, and I think you know it, it, when we talk about uh, finding out why people are jumping into the river in the first place. I think that that's one thing. Research is also um, a huge thing. You know, a lot of public money uh, is spent on some of the charities, uh, like Samaritans, for example. Uh, and, uh, you know, but, but uh, we need to sort of look at that research and, and look at the value that we are getting for the public money that is being spent on that research um, because I keep coming back to the same point um, the figures aren't changing we can sit here and we can talk as long as we like and you know we can sort of have our theories and, and whatever but while ever those figures remain the same none of us is solving the problem this is why I think it's got to be a radical change that goes through every sort of layer of society, um, you know, from the NHS to the media to the education system. Um, because I think it's that big, that the, the problem really is that big. And I, this is what I want to kind of scream at politicians, you know. Are you on board with this? Uh, and if so, great. If not, why not? Why not? Have you recognised the scale of, of this problem? Um, so, yeah, again, another rambling answer. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's really powerful and so, so important. Yes, radical change. Absolutely. 100 um, percent. And there's two things that popped up for me when you said that about our politicians. The first one for me is if you to have empathy, you need to feel both sort of geographically and physically close to, to the situation. And perhaps, um, and I'm only saying perhaps, the only reason some of our politicians don't feel close to this or the empathy is because they've never truly experienced any of those serious sufferings. I don't know, maybe. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd like to explore that in research, how much suffering there's actually been in the, you know, um, I don't know, maybe it's just me having assumptions. Um, but also the other thing that I wanted to discuss that you, you've, you've approached a little bit, and, and I'd love your take on this, is um, that I practice mindfulness, and as part of that mindfulness, which is based on Buddhism, there's a lot of some of the practice I've done is around looking at death and the impermanence of life and I feel that as as human beings we're not very good with that notion of death and when we we almost there's a feeling to me of like skirting around that notion of death 
in a sense that you know I was recently I don't know if I can find it um reading this beautiful book by um Mary Bateson on composing a further life um which is about the age of active wisdom so it's about uh you know literally she talks about when we retire uh becoming a you know as we get older rather than being hidden in in our um care homes and you know not not being part of the society that actually wisdom should be part like it was in other tribes and you know in the in in the more um in in some some societies you know all the people are actually contributors as that wisdom and and i don't know how you view that concept of impermanence and, and death yourself mike but to me i don't think there's enough open talking about this so you know from from childhood you know being protected I, I, my husband's father uh, um died beginning of september um and we didn't shy away with the children around talking about the the fact that obviously their grandfather had died and you know how that made them feel but also you know they came to the to the funeral um because it, this is part of life you know we born we die and in between there's life um and, and why is it that as a, as societies or as human beings we're so afraid of talking about this? Because then you know that notion of talking about suicide, actually saying, asking someone, "How are you feeling?" and hearing their response and making sure that the answer is not, "I feel so horrible," and you know, "I, I don't feel like my life is worth continuing." then that should be part of the conversation, right? Absolutely. You know, we shouldn't be afraid to say to someone, are you suicidal? Have you thought about taking your own life? Um, because, you know, as the, as the research has proven, that does not encourage people to uh, take their own life. Um, I, yeah, I, I'm not sure I have the answer to, to this uh to be honest uh but you know let me have a go just sort of giving you a few of my own thoughts um i think it's anything that you know is uh, that we consider because of our sort of uh, cultural upbringing to be dark anything that's dark um we leave it there we pr prefer not to go to it and, and examine it and I uh, always sort of cite the example of child abuse you know 20 years ago the whole issue of child abuse was um, festering in a dark little corner and and children the advice given to children uh, sometimes in a you know a well-meaning way uh, I, I guess was just don't talk about it you know just you know don't mention it to anyone let's, let's just carry on as though it hadn't happened and one of my best phrases is is sunlight is the best anesthetic that's one of my favorite um sort of phrases because i think it's only when you shine a spotlight in that dark little corner uh, as we did with child abuse that you lead to a place where the conversation around it is so much more healthy and children nowadays you know there are all kinds of concerns about you know exposing children even to a discussion about child abuse but that's all we did and look at what happened you know the the conversation around it uh, is far healthier far more 
transparent. And I think that suicide is in that dark little corner uh, where child abuse was 20 years ago. We're afraid to talk about it. We'd rather not think about it. And we need to shine a light on it. Um, and I think that's that's the only way that the, the we'll get rid of the stigma and, and that the stigma will evaporate is if we talk about it, be transparent about it, uh, be open about it. Um, and also this idea of lived experience. You know, you, you talked about people in research and in politics or, or whatever who are involved in the in the world of suicide. Um, you know, you might say that I would say this, wouldn't I? But uh, I think the sort of lived experience is, is I'd like to think, extremely valuable um, whenever we have a discussion about suicide. Um, people, I think, have got to know what that means and uh, they've got to know what the full impact is because, you know, we're one grieving family. But um, Ross had so, so many friends and neighbours and relatives. Uh, he has a brother and a sister, um, you know, so many people uh, involved in this sort of ripple effect. So, um yeah, I basically uh, my one of my beliefs, uh, and I, you know, perhaps this comes from my experience as a, as a journalist, is to let's let's shine that spotlight on that dark little corner and, and see um, if we can if we can make an improvement. And you know what? I feel inspired to link that to Marianne Williamson's poem. Do you know Mar Marianne Williamson's poem? Um, so uh, she she wrote this poem, and it's it's above my my uh, my desk. So I'm going to read it to you, if I may. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It's our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be this brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You're just you're a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We're born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we light, we let our own light shine. We unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. We, as, we, as we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. And to me, you know, despite whether you, you that God thing, whether you know, some people say that puts me off. To me, it's, it's what you were describing, that shining the light. And you were also talking about a shift and an approach that is like a drastically different approach where um, that coldness of the system and maybe that simply, I mean, I don't know, the answer might be to just bring a, a lot more love and sort of shining light and, you know, the, the brightness of the sun, that warmth. Um, I think that, that that's so... You know, that's so, such a powerful metaphor. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I meant it sort of exactly in, in that context, Fabienne. Uh, but yeah, I, I do see uh, what you're saying. Um, and for me, you know, in, in journalism, I think that, you know, shining that 
spotlight. I never regretted. Um, for for example, uh, I covered the Hillsborough disaster, at which ninety six football fans lost their lives. Um, you know, an event that happened a long time ago, back in nineteen eighty nine, and uh, the cameraman at the time received a lot of uh, abuse. Uh, because people um, thought that he was sort of intruding into uh, something dark and, and awful. Uh, and that cameraman, whose name is Ian Young, his pictures went on to be used around the world and were quite significant uh, when it came to improvements in safety at football stadia around the world. And that's what I mean by shining um, a, a light on, on things like that. Um, I just, uh, I'm always, you know, motivated in terms of, of what I do by that, that line in, in Ross's letter, you know, please fight for mental health. The support is just not there. Um, uh, and I, when I think about the perception of the darkness, um, that must have overwhelmed him at, at that point. You know, the only thing I can think of is to, you know, try to bring some kind of hope to people as well. I think that um, the, the, the light, uh, it, it's not just sort of exposure in media terms, it's also hope because I think Ross would have found salvation. I don't agree with what he did. Uh, I love him and no dad could be more proud of his son um, but I don't think he did the right thing and I think that you know uh, one thing that I try to sort of get across now to everybody is that there is always hope um, and you know suicide is never the the solution um, and that's part of what I mean by I think you know shining the light basically is, is to um, let people know that despite everything, we still believe as a family that there is a lot of hope for people um, who are going through these struggles and, you know, never to, never to give up. And um, yeah, I just sort of, to anybody else in, in Ross's situation who's been through what he must have been through and who finds themselves in that dark place you know I, I would just plead with them to stay and to reach out and know that they're loved far more than they realize and that's one thing that that you know uh, that uh, we appreciate uh, now we no longer have Ross that uh, if he could have seen you know just the love and the support uh, then you know maybe he wouldn't have uh, done what he did. Yes, that, yes, absolutely. So that, you know, away from the darkness and you shining the light and, and educating us and sharing with us in the way that you are doing, but also despite your 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 grief and and i can only as i said previously you know all the emotions that you as a family must be going through um and you know that grieving process um i just really also love that message that you know 
suicide is not the answer and that you know maybe sending that message as well as the you know talking and asking people how they are and and uh, and you know asking them if they are feeling suicidal or if they have suicide ideation is one way but also sending the other message that it's not dark it's not all dark and it's not you know there is hope and that we can reach out you know with that light shining that light um and and i think i think mike you are you are doing this so beautifully you know to me shining the light is also about being authentic and truly showing up as a, as oneself uh, even if that sometimes feels really scary um, and I love that you are really coming into this conversation and you know everything you're doing this way because I, I think people can only but respond to that authenticity yeah, I mean, you know, I'm trying to uh, get across to men in particular, as I said, that, uh, you know, vulnerability is not weakness. So um, it wouldn't be right to fight against my own vulnerability. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of it. Uh, I'm not ashamed of, of Ross. Uh, you know, I'll sort of love him till uh, the day that, that I die um but yeah i think um I've, I, I i guess i've always you know even before we lost ross kind of thought that you know i don't i just don't get this idea that um we you know uh, feel squeamish about uh in emotion um i just don't get it and uh you know we i think as human beings we we cry for a reason and um you know we shouldn't sort of uh, i don't want to cry you know i don't want to upset people um but you know it's uh, sometimes it's it's quite cathartic uh, to do it and even if i tried to resist it i don't think i could anyway um because our loss is just so far too too great um so yeah thank you Thank you for your comments there. They're, they're uh, much appreciated, but you know, I'm just speaking for uh, speaking for for Ross really. Uh, I'm just a bereaved dad. That's all. And um, yeah, I hope if I do have a, a, a message message for other people, if uh, if um, I can make a change, then you know, I'll. I'll try to do my bit basically and i i the, the the linguist just wants to challenge that i'm just bereaved that i think you are a, a, a fabulous bereaved dad who in the memory of his son is doing this fabulous work um so not just it's it's you know the work you are doing you know like like we said previously Ross is is with you in the process and you are you are through your work doing what he asked you to do which is you know look at improving mental health because the help is not there so you know thank, thank you Mike and and thank you for not just the, the the work you're doing but also for talking to me today that's uh you know I'm very very grateful
Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, wonderful. And um, yes, let's let's keep in touch. And if there's anything I can help with as well in in your work and the process, then um, do let me know. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'd, I'd really like that, uh, Fabien, because apart from anything else, I'd like to find out more about about your work. It's all been about sort of uh, me and my situation. But at some stage, if you have some time, uh, maybe over the next few weeks or so, uh, it'd be nice to sort of catch up so I could learn a bit more about about what you do. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, let's okay. do that. All let's right. Let's do that. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your interest. It's very much appreciated. No, thank you for all your time and and uh, let's keep in stuff in 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 touch. Uh, I'm gonna just stop the recording here. Um... Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify. You can also reach me via Twitter at FlourishingHE on LinkedIn, or you can join our private Facebook group, Flourishing Education. All the links are easily available on anchor.fm. Thank you so much, and I hope you are flourishing. Bye for now.